Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. Jess, thanks for coming today. I want to welcome you onto the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is this will be fun. So you're the CEO of the Harris Houston Sports Authority, correct? Harris County Houston Sports Authority. I know it's a really long name, and they're in alpha order because we love both the county and the city, but we didn't want to. That way, I like that. Yeah, (laughs) easy way to play it. Politically played well. Yes. So you've been the CEO since 2006. That is a long time. It is. And, you know, if someone would have told me that I'd be sitting here 17 years later, I'm not sure I would have believed it, but we have such a great opportunity in the city. And I've always felt that since the day I stepped here, stepped into this position. So let's start there. Why don't you tell our listeners just what the organization is, just high level and kind of the high level things that it's doing in our community. And then we'll maybe go into a little more detail on that. So if you go back 25 years ago, the Houston Oilers had left town to become the Tennessee Titans. We had two other professional sports teams, the Rockets and the Astros, that were also being courted by other cities. And they were saying, look, we might leave if we can't figure out how to get new venues built. And so that really was the beginning of the Harris County Houston Sports Authority. We went to the state legislation to create a sports venue district that collects taxes. Okay hotel tax and car rental tax. So basically the visitors that are coming to town are paying for the bonds that we've issued on these stadiums. And that's really how it all started. The state then gave the responsibility back to the local community. So half of my board is appointed by the mayor with city council approval, and then half is appointed by the county commissioner's court. Together they appoint a chairman. Kenny Friedman is our chairman. He's been chair for quite a while. And and the citizens were able to vote on how those tax dollars would be spent. So we couldn't do any of the stadiums and build any of them without voter approval. Okay. And so going back those 25 years, and that sounds like that's how we got to, I guess, what is now Minute Maid Park in Toyota Center and eventually NRG. Is that correct? Correct. So it started out as Enron Field, if you'll remember, back in the day. And then before they opened, it became Minute Maid Park. And the voters voted on... Enron Field and Energy, at the time it was Reliant Stadium, we had to go out twice to the citizens to get Toyota Center. And so, and it was close. It was a close margin. There was 50% of the people that thought, yes, we should build these and keep our team. There was 50% that said, you know, we can't be in the business of building stadiums. So it was quite tumultuous time, honestly, and there was a lot of controversy. Even after I got here and the buildings were fairly new, I was really hired to help usher us into the new realm, which is to be the sports marketing agency and put us on the map nationally and internationally as this great sports town because we had these beautiful buildings. But I didn't realize how much controversy was still lingering over our agency. And the issue of the bonds, I guess. Yeah. Right, right. And I was new. I, you know, I moved to Houston, so I didn't really realize how, I guess, how divided the community was on that decision. 
to build the stadium. So let's go back, I guess, then. You start in 2006 as a CEO. You're taking over an organization as a leader. What were some of the things that you had to do to start building your own team and implementing some of your own strategies? Well, it's an interesting question because I came from a city that had a huge marketing, millions and millions of dollars we spent just marketing. And I had moved around the country with convention visitor bureaus helping cities brand and market themselves, and they all had really big budgets. But this in San Antonio, they had a particularly large budget to market their destination. And so we had also a big team of people. We had a whole a public relations team and marketing team and sales team. And so when I moved here, we had three people. And wow. $30,000. Wow. So, the, the fourth largest city, and that's all we had. Right. And and in Houston First, which was, you know, our Convention Visitor Bureau falls under Houston First, and, and, and they were doing a lot of the marketing, and so it was okay. I mean, I took the job because I realized that we can still make this work. But at the time, a lot of cities were splinting, splintering off and having sports commissions that would focus purely on bringing sporting events. And the reason is it's very different than a professional meeting planner that, you know, is with a corporation or has a team of people with a national association that can do all of that work themselves. We're talking about second and third tier type of sporting events that really need your marketing expertise. They need people standing behind a merchandise table helping them sell merchandise and things like that. So very different models. Mm-hmm. That's why you saw this specialty of sports commissions popping up all over the country. Okay. So... You started with three people. Where are you today? We just were looking around because mostly because of all of the events we have. So we have hired a lot of contractors that work specifically on Men's Final Four, which we'll be hosting here in less than 60 days. Next year is college football playoffs, so less than a year away. We have another team of about nine people on that. As we lead into World Cup, we'll be hiring staff. So we kind of fluctuate up and down depending on the events we have. When we have Junior Olympics in 2025, we usually have about 23 to 24 staff people. And then we have full-time 21 that day in and day out are there and have the knowledge, right? So the contractors come and work under them. So I always like to ask, you know, leaders – I think one thing that they all agree with is building a healthy culture within your organization is like the key to the kingdom. Has that been your experience? And if so, kind of how would you describe the culture that you've built at the sports authority since taking over 17 years ago? Yeah, and I think it's really the culture of the city too, because we're selling a destination, not just inside of our walls. And we couldn't do this without partners. When I first got here, we had such a small team and such a small budget that I realized we had to partner with the stadiums, with the tenants in those buildings, with Houston First and the arts community or whomever, and then we had to build a volunteer database. And that's how we got the work done in the early days before we had staff and we had and then with the staff, you know, whether it was bringing interns in, I remember the first Junior Olympic bid we pitched, an intern helped me write it because we, I didn't have any staff to okay. do <laughs> And I remember the two, like, when I first took the job, I said to the board, okay, who writes your press releases? And they're like, well, 
that's what we hired you to do. And I said, okay. And who does your sales calls and who does your, do you have an outside firm that doesn't, nope, that's what we hired you to do. So everything kind of fell on me and it was a fun challenge. I said, okay, we have to build this thing from the ground up and in order to put ourselves on the map like they wanted, and that was kind of my marching orders, we needed to build a whole team of people. And one of the things I think that we've always kept was this partnership teamwork. We can get more done if we all pitch in and, you know, it's a divide and conquer kind of mindset, right? right? And so we've always kept that. And I think that's actually helped us. And it's because of our humble beginnings. And even the interns or our volunteers are treated like staff members because that's what we had to do in the beginning yeah. to get the work done. That makes sense. I love that. Well, and it, I guess it, there's a great analogy there, right? Teamwork and it, you're promoting sporting venues and trying to bring sporting things into town. So it makes sense. What are some of the challenges, as you mentioned, the ebbs and flows of bringing in, I guess, these specialty groups that are event-specific, what are some of the things that you try to do to help make that cohesive, right? Because you have these full-time people, and then you're bringing in, I guess, these kind of temporary workers, to lack of a better term. Yeah, we really try to onboard everybody, even our volunteers. If you look at a Super Bowl that used 10,000 volunteers, you look at NCA Men's Final Four here that's coming up, and we'll have several thousand volunteer shifts being filled. And so whether you're bringing in a volunteer to be part of your team or interns or contractors, to me, the onboarding is all the same. We want you to understand what your role is, who you're working for, and that we're all in this together to make Houston shine. The other thing is putting our fingerprint on every event that we do. It's really part of our DNA. And so that innovative push, you will find it runs throughout our entire team, whether it's the accounting team that's paying off bonds, whether it's the sales team or our front desk person, we're always looking for that innovative touch. How do we do it better, faster, make it bigger, be more impactful to our community with every sporting event we bring to town? I love talking about innovation. So give me some examples of some things that you've done recently or that you're kind of currently doing that you think have been part of that innovative spirit. Okay, so in 2016, the last time we hosted Men's Final Four, for example, we wanted to get the young people involved. We wanted kids to be able to go into the stadium that normally can't afford a ticket. Because again, these stadiums were built with tax dollars, and so we're always thinking about that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Communities should all get to experience, you know, things like Final Four. And so we started talking to HISD and said, look, on the practice day, it's free to the public. Maybe we could help bust the kids. Maybe we could bring them in. Is there a way to get the kids jazzed and excited about this ahead of time? How can we work together? And through that conversation, we learned that a lot of our kids in the HISD system are failing in reading. And the statistics say that by third grade, if kids aren't reading at third grade level, that they're going to struggle the rest of their student career. And so... Basically, HISD said, well, we don't know how to get them involved and how to make this an official field trip because it's a sporting event, but if you could help us figure out the reading problem. And that's really where Read to the Final Four came from. Wow. It was really a brainstorming session. So we start in March when the brackets all open up, and as the kids log their minutes that they've read and the brackets go down, so do this each school until you get to the Final Four schools that have logged the most amount of reading time. 
And that started pretty simply, simple, and it was thrown together in a couple of months, and it was very successful. NCA loved it so much that they required every city from that point forward to do a Read to the Final Four program. Now come 2023, and we're looking at how much that program has grown as it's moved around the country. And we had to hire a full-time person just to handle that program. We now have 11 school districts involved. <clears throat> we have logged, I think, over 34 million minutes that these kids have read. They're excited about reading. We do all kinds of programming in the schools, and it's all based on Final Four and part of the Final Four budget. But we go into the schools to teach that about the fact that learning is fun, reading is fun, and it's going to help them be successful. And then those Final Four schools get to come out. They get to touch the floor. They The winning school gets all kinds of prizes and library books and all kinds of great things. So that's an innovative way to leave a legacy in your community. It's tangible. It's measurable. Yeah. I mean, right? I didn't realize I was giving you such a softball. What an amazing story. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I remember the Final Four being here, but I've never heard that story till just now. Yeah. That, I mean, kudos to you and your team for being such a leader and allowing Houston to be the, you know, the, get the credit for being such an innovative leader in that area. Yeah. And we do that over and over with every event that, that we bring in just amazing stories of how it really leaves a lasting effect in our community. That's great. So we talked a little bit about your team and I guess the culture that you've got there. How would you describe your leadership style? I like to make people accountable and give them the tools they need and the ability to take ownership. Now, not everybody can step in and be take ownership because they're afraid or their personnel prof- profile, I guess, makes them want more oversight and more, I guess, input. And so what we work really hard with every one on our team is to get them to the point where they can feel like, wow, I can own this area. And even interns, and many times the entry interview is very different than their exit interview when they leave. As far as they'll say when they're leaving, I was really scared. I was given this piece and I'm thinking, what am I going to do if I drop the ball? We want to stretch them. We want them to take that ownership. We have a lot of young people that have been with us for many years. They stay. And that's because there is an opportunity for them, even in a smaller environment or a smaller organization, to spread their wings and take leadership. And so that's really important to me to teach everybody who comes through. You're not entitled. It's not about you know, all of your wins that you had three years ago. It's about every day getting up and taking responsibility and looking at your area. How can you do it better? How can we be more innovative? I don't care if you are sealing envelopes. How can we do that better? Maybe we shouldn't be using envelopes at all. I mean, you know, and so that kind of is really important to me is making sure that I am preparing everyone and bringing out the best in them that they can rise to the highest level in their career that they want to go. Love it. Creating opportunity for everyone, right? Are there any tools you use in the interview process, onboarding process that you've found to be, you know, more successful than others in kind of helping you pick the right team teammates to join? Yes. So we have a tendency as human beings to hire people that are like us. Right. We like people that are like us, birds of a feather flock together. So one of the things we do is specifically pick out people that are not like us to do team interviews. 
So if I'm a really outgoing person and I'm a hard charger, I want to pick the brake pedal person in our team that, you know, is more quiet and more reserved and sits to themselves. And so we do these team interviews after, of course, we've gone through all the resumes and we kind of pick out those that are qualified. And then we do team interviews to ensure that we are giving the best possible chance to every candidate and looking at it from all angles so that we're not just hiring a whole team of people that are just like us. Right, right. That bring different strengths to the table. And so we do that. We also have a profile. It's a questionnaire. There's no right or wrong answers. It's kind of fun. We share the results with the, every candidate so it's not a secret about here's your strengths. Here's where we see how you would fit into this role and do really well. Here's some areas that might be a challenge for you. Let's talk about that. And so we do all of that with the final candidates. And then the, lastly, I would say before anyone is hired, it they come through me. Okay. And so these team interviews all happen, all of that happens, and I trust my team, and I want my leaders to to have people on their team that they trust and that you know they feel they can work with. But at the end of the day, they're still going to represent our corporation. And so I just ask each of the team leaders before that hire that I get a chance to talk with them. Makes sense. I like that. I've had other uh, CEOs come on the podcast, and a couple have said flat out, I'm a terrible interviewer. Because I like everybody, right? And my, I'm such a, I'm always a, in a sales mode, right? I just, you know, and it's actually really true. I think at a lot of people at that level, it's hard, and you should, I think, rely and build a team to help you vet these candidates and rely on a lot of data sources, I guess, data points. Yeah, I have this CEO coach that from time to time we talk, and I'll say, "Wow, I really love detailed people." Because I'm such a visionary and high level and looking at always looking at things 30,000 feet up. And he goes, I hope so, because you have a whole team of them around you. But that's a good thing because their strengths are opposite of mine. And so that's what makes us a great team. Yeah. So let's you've been in this role for 17 years. Uh, can you think of a setback or failure, you know, based on you know a bad decision or what however that came about in your world that one, tell us what that is or what kind of what the situation was and what did you learn from it and how did it make you a better leader because of it? Yeah, I think we have setbacks, all of us as leaders, all the time. Sure. And whether it's a bad hire, right, even after you do all of that and it's still a, a not a great fit and there's still human beings and you want to handle that the right way sure. or a bid that we've put a lot of money and time and the community's depending on us to win that bid and we lose. I remember the first two times we bid for college football playoffs, we didn't win. And we put our heart and soul into it. And sure. we thought for sure we would we would win. And I remember after that loss, the second loss, saying, wow, we have to really look and assess why are we not winning when it's so obvious we're a football city, you know, all yeah. of these things, right? We have a great That'd be hard setbacks, I mean, just to get that rejection. Yeah, so we finally, I called the head of college football playoffs at the time and said, we're going to be hosting Men's Fun 4. Why don't you come in? I'd like you just to be my guest. I want to take you around, show you, you know, how we set up our fan fest area, what, you know, you can come to the game, but I want you to see how Houston shines when we have these big events. He said, okay, he came in. And then the next year we had Super Bowl. I called again because remember they bid years out. So all of, of the course. years were taken. Right. And so I said, why don't you come in again? This is a little different event. I want you to see this one too. And it's football, your football. And so they came in again. This time he brought a couple people with them. And about two months after we 
finished with Super Bowl, I received a phone call and he said, Janice, I want to come to town and I want to do a one city negotiation. We're not going to go out to bid. I want to sit across the table from you and see if we can make this work. If we can't, then we'll go out to bid. But if we can make it work, then we'll just make the announcement we're coming to Houston in 2024. And that's what happened. Wow. What a great story. So I think sometimes those setbacks maybe force us to have a different approach. Yeah. But that's, I mean, when I listen to you tell that story, right, I think the setbacks sound like it made you and your team think, how do we go about this differently? Well, right. we tried it twice the same way. It didn't work. So what can we do and how do we show up? How do we show our city differently than on paper? Right. And I remembered that experience with World Cup because I wasn't going to get another chance at World Cup, right? It comes every, you know, right. <laughs> 30 years or whatever. And so in 1994, Houston wasn't at the table. Dallas was a host city. Houston was not. I knew the United States was going to bid again. It was just a matter of time. They were in the mix when Qatar won and, you know, didn't even make the finals. And so I knew they were hungry and they were going to go back at it the first chance that they got. And so about a decade ago, we sat down and Jamie Roots, my friend at the time, who came from the soccer world, we said, yeah. all right, we have to start focusing to ensure we have a seat at the table, at least when this bid comes out. Right. And that, that Houston has a real shot at being a host city. And so we took every soccer event, small, large, hard to sell tickets, easy to sell tickets. I mean, Copa de America, Gold Cups, the NCAA Final Four for soccer, you know, the College Cup. And so we just began to work on every soccer event, even soccer friendlies. We we did soccer friendlies. And those some of those budgets were tough to make work, but we knew we needed to be in the trenches. We also needed to show the world what a great soccer town we were. Sure. And lo and behold, that paid off because we, by the time we got into the bid, the United States was in this bid, we had hosted more international soccer events than any city in the United States by that point. That's impressive. Now, still wasn't an easy win because people in the beginning said they're not going to award Houston and Dallas. And Dallas was more well-known in Zurich than Houston. And so we worked very hard to, I guess, teach them that by having both cities, it would actually enhance their attendance because people could get between. And if you looked at the East Coast, a lot of those cities were closer together, even though they were in a different state. Right. And so it didn't make sense to have this attitude that you can't allow Houston and Dallas. And so we never went head to head with Dallas. We actually included them and said, we and Dallas did the same. We think our state can host both and we think we can feed off of each other and it's going to be a better experience for the fans. And then we, I hired Chris Canetti. At the time, he was the president with Dynamo and Dash. Right. And he had been there for a while, and I wasn't sure he would leave his post, but to his credit, he saw the vision, and I said, look, it could only be a, a one-year job. Because <laughs> sure, gonna, you don't get the bid, right? <laughs> if we don't get the bid, then I don't have a job for you, but I really think we're going to get the bid. I think we just have to have... I wanted somebody getting up every single day focusing on it, because you know we have all these other... Events. We have $1.2 billion of debt service that we have to oversee. We've got to make sure the stadiums stay up to date. We have all these things that, you know, I knew I wouldn't be able to focus on it 100% of my time. And I needed somebody that could. Yeah. And that was from the soccer world. And so he was perfect. Makes total sense. He came in. He took it to the finish line, you know, for us. Just a great job. And I look at that and we really became leaders. The rest of the country was saying, 
well, hey, Houston, how are you handling this? Or the human trafficking side of it. We have a full-time person in the mayor's office that handles human trafficking where most cities don't have that. So she, Manal, became a big part of that bid in putting that whole human trafficking, anti-human trafficking, I should say, piece together. And so there were a lot of things that we could take a leadership role. We were the first city to hire a full-time person at that caliber. We had to go out and raise the money to finish the bid. We thought it was going to be a year. It ended up being three and a half years because of COVID, right. uh, but we had raised enough to kind of cover Chris's salary and all of the things that you need to do to, you know, put into these big bids. You know, you're doing site visits, you're flying people in. I mean, there's just a lot. There's a whole marketing campaign. We hired a team out of London, a PR team, where most cities were focusing on getting the PR out in their local community. We wanted the world and those in Zurich that pay attention to soccer magazines and different publications than we do here in Houston. We wanted them to hear about Houston. And so that was part of also our strategy. So that, that was the decision makers, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you this, and you kind of covered some of it. I mean, what the kinds of things that go into these bids for our city to you know be able to host these great events? I mean, you know, just kind of high level. What does that look like? It's, I mean... Yeah, I think sometimes citizens don't realize how much work is going on behind the scenes. They think, wow, we have great venues, we're a big soccer or a big sports town, depending on what sport we're going at. They must just like Houston and pick Houston, and really there's a lot of work behind the scenes. For instance, with World Cup, you've got sponsors that have paid millions of dollars to put their name on those stadiums. But during World Cup, that gets covered up and it's called World Cup Stadium. And so, you know, we had to go speak with energy and thank goodness, you know, they saw the vision and they were excited. And that's where corporate partners in every aspect of this or partners at the venue or the team is so important. Make or break it, right? Right, right. There's spaces in our stadium that belong to the Texans through a lease agreement. And, you know, we had to bring them in as partners to talk about, you know, the various areas. We had to become experts in growing grass. You know, figuring out how are you going to have grass last for 35 days in the stadium, in the stadium. And you got venues that are in Northern States or Northern climates and Southern climates, indoor, outdoor, yet all of this grass, the pitch has to be perfect. The ball has to bounce the same, no matter what stadium you are in to make sure it's fair play for all of the players. So we had grass experts trying to help us because one of our issues and challenges was we have the rodeo. So most other stadiums around the country can get their grass in and growing and rooted sooner than we could because we had to wait until after the rodeo. So things like that, you're working through all of that before you can even put a bid in because you have to be sure you can do it. Right. Amazing. Other thing that I guess occurred to me as you were talking about the World Cup, and I I think it's similar to any CEO, is the challenge of managing and dealing with the day-to-day execution of your mission and strategy while also looking out 10 plus years on, you know, what should you be doing? What do you aspire to be doing and balancing all of that? You know, how do you go about that as a CEO of the sports authority? Yeah. And I think that is a challenge, especially in our industry. And then making sure that we have our eye on the ball for the future, that we have at least, you know, one major event coming in each year and filling need times. So it's one thing to be able to go out and bid for an event, but if all of our hotels are full, 
already and the convention center doesn't need the business like it doesn't make sense so making sure that we're looking at the whole picture and there's been a couple of times we we bid for the table tennis championships i'll take that as an example because the usopc called and said look it's the 50th anniversary of ping pong diplomacy this event has never been held in the united states ever oh wow and we think Houston is the only city that could do it. Would you be willing to bid for it? And we're looking at the calendar going, wow, this is a jam-packed year for us. We had Junior Olympics. We had Men's Regent. We had all these things already on the books. And so I said, can we go after another year? No, we really think this is the year because of the ping pong diplomacy. So we fit it into Thanksgiving because the rest of the world doesn't celebrate our Thanksgiving, that American holiday. Yeah. And that filled a huge need time for all of our venues and our restaurants and our hotels. And we had 30,000 tickets sold to that event. Our Chinese American community just loved about- that sport. So so you bring up a good point there. And I really want the listeners to understand. You can tell from your comments, right? The primary goal is to make Houston shine. But Part of that is it drives the events that you're working on and that you put your team put on here drive economic benefit to our community. Can you give us some of the examples and dollars that our community benefits from because these events are here? Yes. And I would say that without the new stadiums, we would have never been able to bring all these big events. And so that that makes total sense, right? And I don't think the community questions it anymore right that and the need to keep them up to date right right we need to keep them up to date so we can continue to bring them and the reason that our community embraces the events instead of complaining and saying oh it's more traffic or <clears throat> i can't get a ticket to the event anyway is because again every event we are providing services or touch points for the entire community to get involved whether it's through free concerts or busing kids in that wouldn't normally get to go through corporate sponsors, whatever it is, right? We're sure. Super Bowl, you know, there were 70 different charities that, that were able to feed off of that event and the money that, that, that it drove through our economy. But we have $1.2 billion of debt service. And since we have been keeping track when, since I arrived, we have brought in over $9 billion worth of economic impact. So it's more than wow. paid for itself with sure. the stadiums, as well as all of the other halo effects that come from them. Right. That's- I mean, I've heard, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Final Four that is coming, like you said, in less than 60 days, that'll be, what, close to $100 million in economic impact just that weekend event? Right? Yes, and we and I try to stay away from quoting economic impact versus direct spending because sometimes there's multipliers and there's lots of controversy around that. But what kind of tax dollars are we bringing in? That's mostly what I look at because those tax dollars help fill potholes in the road and they, you know, it, they help us hire more police. So the more tax dollars we can bring into the community, it helps all of us. And so I really look at the direct spending and the tax dollars and that's really what we focus on. I mean, if you look at it, there is no question that building these venues and keeping them up to date has been a really great thing for Houston. And you look at the rebirth of downtown. Sure. I was looking at some old pictures because it was our 25th anniversary and it looked like Toyota Center Minute Maid were right next to each other because there was nothing. (laughs) It was just desolate, you know, in between there. And you look at now the two convention center hotels attached to the convention center and Discovery Green Park and Green Street with all of the retail and restaurants. And just as you look at that, growth, it's a really good thing for our downtown. 
Yeah. Well, it's really become, you know, an event destination where people, it becomes walkable. People wouldn't think they would say that about Houston, but so let's, let's turn for a minute and talk about things that Houstonians and Houston have to look forward to based on the work that you and your team have been doing, because, you know, I'm aware of it generally, but I mean, I think when you start laying it out, it's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I know in the last year or so, we've had some really neat events and we have some, you know, like I said, right around the corner. Yeah. So, you know, of course, men's final four coming up in 2024 college football playoffs, 2025 junior Olympics. Again, we're on permanent rotation every four or five years. They come because they love Houston. It's 15,000 kids, about 40,000 people. When you count all the parents and grandparents that come Uh, then 26, of course, with world cup, we're looking at a world BMX championships coming okay. in 27 or 28, right before the LA Olympic Games. Greg Grissom and I have already been talking about and brainstorming when's that next Super Bowl bid that we should do. Okay. And so, and there's all of these big events that the community knows about. And then there's the smaller ones like BMX Nationals is coming this weekend. Probably people don't know. Okay. Nope. Bike Park built in the Greens Point area, right next to the, the world's largest skate park. So you got the skate park and bike park and, and it's literally the best in the world right here in our backyard. We attract nationals and state events and all kinds of things out there. But what I love about that project is we have bikes that have been donated and helmets so that all the kids that are around that park and you got a lot of apartment buildings and a lot of kids that have never ridden a bike We didn't want them looking over the fence thinking, gosh, I wish I could ride a bike and I could be part of this. And so we have a system where they can come in and it's like checking out a library book. They can check out a helmet and a bike and they can ride. And in 2020, we had a goal before the pandemic hit to reach 20,020 kids in Houston and teach them how to ride bikes. We had a trailer, a bunch of interns on our team would go out, work with the PE teachers, get these kids on bikes. And before... March, when we closed our office, we had already reached over 20,020 kids. Wow. That's... And it's, you know, you hear the stories. There's one little boy comes from a single home. His mom couldn't afford a bike, and he had never learned how to ride a bike. And he came to the park, and he comes out all the time now, and he's a part of that programming. But those are the kind of things that I love. And the sporting events are just a platform. Yes, we want to put on a great event. We want Houston <clears throat> to shine. But... Those are the stories that touch me is what we leave behind. And through these events, we bought all these bikes and helmets and kids can come. I mean, the real takeaway for me is, you know, what you kind of started with this. What started with maybe some controversy or whatever and building some amazing venues, sporting venues have allowed the community to host these events that drive so much revenue that then you you said your ultimate goal is to leave a lasting mark on the community. And the, the stories you shared are just quite amazing and quite frankly need to be told more. I haven't heard of the reading program or the bike program. And I mean, that's changing people's lives. Yeah. Through sports, we believe we can change people's lives. Yeah. Well, so as we wrap up, I want to kind of get less serious, a little more fun. So what was your first job? I worked in the hotel business. I came up the ranks through hotel and Loved it. I loved servicing people. People that are coming to our hotel are excited. They're going to have, they're there for an event or they're there to, for, you know, family fun and building memories. And so I really loved that. And then the Convention Visitors Bureau called. I was involved in a lot of committees and whatnot. And they called me and said, we'd love for you to come and help us sell this three county region. So I made the change there. And really my forte is really just helping 
whether it's a city, an entity, a hotel, whatever, brand and market yourself. How do you stand out? What makes you different? And that's really what I love to do. And when I saw Houston, when I first came here and I saw the opportunity, I just thought, wow, this is amazing. They have three venues. Who's built three brand new venues in that amount of time in any city? And just loved the whole vibe here. I love the philanthropic and energy that comes from that in yeah. this community. I love the diversity. And so I thought, I can sell this. This is a package I can sell all over the world. Yeah, no, I agree. I think once you get here and get to know it, it's a, Houston's a city of can do. For and sure. will do. For sure. And as it comes to business and community. Yeah, and I didn't really know much about Houston. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so when I got here, that was refreshing. I loved it. And it's just been super fun. I don't ever want to leave. <laughs> I'll retire here probably. Good. So... You've been in Texas a, a long time, so I always ask my guests, do you prefer Tex-Mex or barbecue? I think Tex-Mex. Okay. <laughs> Very good. And last, if you could take a 30-day sabbatical, where would you go and what would you do? Oh, that's a good question. So we have a little place in Michigan. I was born and raised in Michigan. Okay. Some people might hear them, my twang still. And my grandkids are up there. And so I like to go up there and spend as much time as possible. It's on a little lake, private lake. We put the boat in the water and it sits there and I pop back and forth on, on the weekends in the summer. And so I probably would just go up there and nice. hang out. A little bit of getaway and downtime. Yeah. Which yeah. you need it every yeah. now and again, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, Janice, it has been wonderful having you on the show. I've loved learning more about what you and everyone at the Sports Authority are doing. And yeah, whatever we can do to help promote all the good you're doing in our community, just let us know. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at BoyerMiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at BoyerMiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.